Our text for this morning's service is possibly the most well-known portion of Scripture in the entire Bible. It is known to the world as the Lord's Prayer, although we'll note a little later why I think the model prayer is a better title, but the prayer itself is found in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. But we're going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 18, just like last week. Last week, we looked at the Lord's teaching on either side of the model prayer as he dealt with religious hypocrisy. You'll see as we read through it again, he talks about don't give charity so that others see how generous you are. Don't pray in ways designed to make others amazed at how righteous you are. Don't put on a show of fasting, which by the way, it was a well-timed lesson for this past week as people were putting ash on their foreheads to commemorate a special time of fasting. Jesus very clearly says, wash your face, comb your hair. Fasting is between you and your heavenly Father. But what we skipped last week is that portion of this text where Jesus teaches us how to pray because in some ways, it seems like it doesn't fit. He he addresses our motives, right? Why do we give? Why do we pray? Why do we fast? And then this section about how to pray seems like it's almost just forklifted and dropped over in here as a parenthetical thought. So our goal this morning is to read the text to see how this prayer fits perfectly in with the surrounding verses, and with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, You shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with the sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. All of Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the main theme of this three-chapter sermon is true righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day taught people that true righteousness could be identified. It could be identified by a person's external behavior. In fact, they taught, if you want to see what true righteousness is, just watch us. If you want to know if someone's righteous, see if they do what we do. Do they wash their hands just the right way? Do they keep from touching sinful things? Do they stay away from sinful people? Do they refrain from working on the Sabbath day? Can you see them praying? Can you see them giving charitably? Can you see them fasting? Are you sure that they're fasting twice a week? How do you really know? To their absolute shock, Jesus comes along in this sermon and tells the people back in chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if that wasn't enough, in Matthew 6, he says that all of those who are trusting in that sort of external righteousness, he calls them hypocrites. They're stage actors. They are wearing a mask. They are putting on a performance. Jesus says true righteousness can't be identified just by somebody's external behavior. Now, listen, understand this. Jesus does insist on righteous behavior. It is clear from this text, you should give to the poor. You should pray. You should fast. He even says in verses 14 and 15 that your willingness and unwillingness to forgive others is inseparably connected to your Father's forgiveness of your sins. So nobody should come to Jesus's message here and say, well, real righteousness is on the inside, so Jesus doesn't care what I do on the outside. That's nonsense. That is not what he's teaching. Righteous behavior on the outside, he says, must reflect true righteousness from the inner being. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. And knowing that that's the lesson that the Lord is teaching here, we can then come to understand how is it that this prayer fits into that message. My goal this morning is to persuade you that the first sentence of this prayer is the key to understanding not only the rest of this prayer, but also understanding how it fits into the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. You can only honestly and sincerely pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, 
if you have the kind of internal righteousness Jesus requires of his followers. Think about this according to the surrounding text, all the things that we read today. The hypocritical Pharisees, they gave charitably, not as a means of seeking God's glory. What did they want? They wanted attention for themselves. I want to make sure that people see that I'm giving charitably so they know how righteous I am. The self-righteous scribes prayed loudly on the street corners and in the synagogues, not with the intention of revering the righteousness of God, but with the hope that the people around would marvel at their own righteousness. They would wear tattered clothes and and must their faces when they fasted and they would do it on the busiest market days of the week not because they thought it helped them get the attention of God as they prayed but because they hoped it would it would earn them the attention of others not only does Jesus say don't be like that he also adds even when you pray Be sure that the goal of your prayer is not primarily yourself, but from the very opening words, let the core desire be sanctifying the name of the Lord in all things. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is a sad reality that we've taken these words from the mouth of the Lord Jesus And the truth is that we could each probably mumble them from memory with no meaning at all, ignoring the warning of verse 7 when he says, when you pray, don't use vain repetitions like the heathen do. In other words, don't pray in vain, or the word vain there means empty. Don't pray in empty, meaninglessly regurgitating the same words over and over without thought. Make sure that you're praying with sincerity. Are we somehow deaf to the words of the Savior here when he says, when you pray, you'd better mean it. And when you pray, the starting point from your prayer is, Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. And so let's talk about this word hallowed for a moment, since it is not part of the working vocabulary of most of us. This is the same word that gets translated other places in the New Testament in different ways. It is a word that means to make holy, to sanctify, to dedicate, to make sacred, to consecrate, to reverence. And so every word of this prayer and every action of your life should find its root in a burning desire to reverence and honor and treasure and esteem your heavenly Father's name above all things. You should speak of him and speak to him in a sense of awe-filled wonder. I mean, get this. We get to address him as our Father in heaven. The word Father here is a very common word. It's an informal word. It's, It's probably stating it a little too gently to say it's the equivalent of daddy, but it's not far off of that. And yet, he is far off. When you pray, you are speaking to the very creator God who is so transcendent that he resides in the heaven above the heavens, and yet at the same time, he is so close that you can speak to him as the most compassionate and accessible human parent. 
Oh, the breathtaking wonder of this. Just to be able to say, our Father in heaven is filled with such simplicity and such splendor that we should reverence and sanctify his name. The way the psalmist says this in Psalm 8 verse 1 is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's also be clear what it means when Jesus speaks of the Father's name. The word name in Scripture carries the idea of reputation. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah gave a prophecy of the coming Messiah, and he said, a virgin will conceive and bear a child and call his name Emmanuel. Now, is the name of the Messiah Emmanuel? Emmanuel? No, not in the way we think of name. The name of the Messiah is Jesus. But the word Emmanuel means God with us. And so the name of Jesus in the sense of the very reputation, his character, how he is known, he is God with us. That's what the idea of this word name means. It's talking about the reputation, the character, his essential essence is the, the name of God, you think of the, the way the name of God is used throughout Scripture. It's used of his reputation, of his majesty, of his actions. So, for example, in Psalm 20, verse 1, it says, The name of the God of Jacob will defend you. In Isaiah 30, 27, it says, The name of the Lord comes traveling from a distance. In Proverbs 18, 10, it says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous can turn into it for safety. So this is the sense of how Jesus is using the word name here. It isn't just saying that that title, Father, or the name, like the word Yahweh or God somehow carries this weight of wonder, but the, the name here is the, the character, how he is known. It is the sum total of all that he is and all that he's done because he is perfect, and good, and majestic, and pure, and holy, and powerful, and to know him by his reputation, to know him especially as your father. This is the greatest treasure of life. There is nothing, there is nothing that compares. The precious glory of his name, his reputation, is a treasure worth protecting. Many years ago, back in my... (laughs) Back in the days of my newspaper career, I once wrote this story, and I can't even tell you what the story was about anymore, but I can tell you what it was not about. It was not about foam cups. You know, the kind of foam cups that some of y'all drank coffee out of this morning. However, I did refer to them, and I called them styrofoam cups. You may or may not know this, But those cups are most definitely not made of styrofoam. I know this because three or four months later, after writing the story, I received a very serious registered letter in the mail from the Dow Chemical Company in regard to my heinous misuse of their trademarked name. The letter assured me that no cup has ever been made of styrofoam, nor would ever there be a cup made of styrofoam. 
And furthermore, they said the generic use of that word in regard to such a cup is not allowable under U.S. trademark laws. Please, cease and desist immediately or we will sue you. You have no right to use our name without your permission. And you definitely do not have our permission to use that name unless you know how to use that name and are going to protect our reputation. Now that might be a a silly example, but suffice it to say, there are times where we know that the names and the, the reputation connected with them are to be taken very seriously. Hallowing the name and reputation of our Creator whom we can call Father only through faith in the Lord Jesus, ought to be something we guard and take seriously. Now I want you to think about how well this fits into the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has been preaching. This isn't just brought in out of nowhere and dropped in as like filler material. It fits in seamlessly because so many times Jesus has already described true righteousness by going back and comparing our thoughts and misconceptions to the the Ten Commandments that God gave, right? So back in chapter 5, we talked about Jesus said, you have heard, you shall not kill. But if you've got unrighteous anger in your heart, God's going to judge you as being guilty of murder already. He goes on to say, you have heard, you shall not commit adultery, but if you have lust in your heart, God judges you as guilty in your heart. And it seems to be his intent here to say without saying that here's yet another reflection of true righteousness from the Ten Commandments. Because what is the second commandment? Y'all didn't know you were getting a test this morning. What is the second commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Never speak of God's name, of his character in a vain or empty, meaningless way. Be purposeful and reverent when you speak of him. And now, as Jesus is teaching, when you pray, you are invariably going to invoke God's name. Do not use vain repetitions, empty repetitions, make sure to check your sincerity before you speak and start off with the heartfelt intention of hallowing, consecrating his name. Now y'all, we're going to deal with the rest of this prayer. But from the very start, the, the deepest desire of your heart has to be the glory and honor and majesty and holiness and sacredness of God's name. And when your innermost being desires and longs to magnify God for all that he is and all that he's done, that is sort of the the rocket fuel that causes the rest of this prayer to lift off because just just think of the rest of the prayer. When, When his name is sanctified in your heart, it is then that you will desire the coming of his kingdom. When, when God's name is hallowed, your, your, your desire for his will is going to be more important than your, your own will. The heart filled with praises for him is the same heart that knows that everything you have down to the very food that sustains you today comes from him. In verse 12, forgiving and and being forgiven. Its source is found in how much you treasure God first. 
Knowing God's sovereign greatness gives you not only a desire to walk in his paths, but also the trust that he directs those paths and protects you from Satan's schemes. So we're about to deal with the structure of the prayer and continue on with the examples Jesus has given for us. But remember that hallowed be your name is primary. All the rest of the prayer flows from having God's name hallowed in your heart. None of the rest of the prayer is practical for those who don't hold God's name and his glory as their greatest treasure. Now, when you look at this prayer, there are probably throughout history several dozen different ways it's been outlined and analyzed. But the simplest and most helpful is probably to recognize it's in two sections. The first section begins with three petitions on God's behalf. And you can identify those by the use of the word your, right? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then that your gets shifted to our or us in the next section with three petitions for ourselves. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. And so to just quickly walk through each of those for a moment, the three appeals on God's behalf, since we've already dealt with hallowed be your name at a little bit of length, um, the second appeal found in verse 2 is your kingdom come. Can you pray this honestly? Like, Do you long for the coming of God's kingdom? Do you look forward to the future day when the Lord Jesus will return to rule and reign over God's kingdom and righteousness? Should be the natural impulse of every born-again believer to both thank God for making us a part of his kingdom and plead with God for the coming of the kingdom in its fullest sense. Now, there is a sense in which the kingdom is already a present reality. Jesus speaks freely of the kingdom in the present tense. And he's already done that in this sermon, right? Back in the Beatitudes, how he began. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or you can even look in the prayer. Look in the prayer here in chapter six, down in verse 13. You will see, he says, yours is the kingdom. That's present tense. Every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and looks to him in faith for their salvation, the Apostle Paul says they are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Praise God, right now, we are part of God's kingdom. But right now is not all there is. Just as Jesus spoke of the kingdom in the present tense, he also sometimes freely speaks of it in the future tense as well. The theme of this sermon is is asking whether or not your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees so that someday you might see the kingdom of heaven. Or here in this prayer, he teaches us to pray for the coming of the kingdom. So God is reigning right now. Jesus is king, but there is a coming day 
when that kingdom will reach its fullest expression, when the Lord Jesus returns to earth and rules and reigns over this earth. Praying your kingdom come is appealing to God with a desire to see that kingdom of Christ when he comes in his glory. Y'all, if you are not ready for it, if you do not long for it, you have no business praying for it. Disciples of Jesus long for the coming of God's kingdom at the second coming of our Lord Jesus. The third petition on God's behalf is your will be done. And it is the natural conclusion of the the second one. If you desire the coming of God's kingdom, then you desire the performance of God's will throughout the earth. And of course, there's a sense in which all things happen according to God's sovereign will. Nothing takes him by surprise. But the idea here of your will be done is Jesus teaching us to pray that we will follow his example in submitting to the revealed will of the Father, the guiding will of the Father. So, for example, later in the Gospels, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus is arrested and taken to be crucified and killed on the cross on our behalf, he was praying in his prayer. He made it abundantly clear that he had every human desire to avoid that horrific experience. And yet he also prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And now here he teaches us to pray the same way. To submit your will to God's will is a vital expression of prayer. And by the way, knowing that, that that is the way Jesus teaches us to pray, that should squash the modern prosperity gospel ideas about prayer, that it is all about getting what you want. It is about approaching God as if he is a genie in the bottle and he is there for you to rub the lamp and say, here's my wishes. If what you want is his will done on earth, if, if, if what you want is his will done in your life, it is an expression of knowing that the purpose and plan that he has is greater, it is more desirable than your own. Prayer is not a means of getting God to do what you want him to do. Praying by Jesus' teaching here actually brings us into line with his will. Now, bring your attention to the end of verse 10, that final phrase there in the first section, on earth as it is in heaven, that could just apply to that last statement, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But I really think just as likely it applies to all of those three requests on God's behalf. In other words, may God's name be hallowed and sanctified and revered on earth as it is in heaven. May God's kingdom extend his perfect righteousness over all the earth just as it is in heaven. May God's will be perfectly performed throughout all the earth just as it is in heaven. And only then, only after calling on us to reverence God's name and desire God's kingdom and submit to God's will, only then Jesus teaches us to start making appeals for ourselves. And here are the three simple appeals for ourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. 
You have to think of this in the, the minds of the original audience Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to a bunch of Jewish people. He's speaking to people who know their national history. The Hebrews had been rescued from slavery out of Egypt. They had miraculously crossed through the Red Sea and they soon found themselves in a wilderness which taught them total reliance on God. He provided for them. He gave them manna, right? Miraculous bread from heaven and told them every day to only gather as much as you need for that day. Why did God make that requirement? Because it sent the clear message. You need God today. You're going to need him tomorrow too. You're never going to not need him. We live in a time with refrigerators and freezers and groceries delivered to your door. You know, if the Hebrews could have got Grubhub or Uber, Uber Eats delivered to the wilderness, they probably would have done that. It's more than a little bit likely that we have lost the kind of urgent dependence on God that this prayer invokes. But it does not change that you are entirely reliant on God. You just enjoy the illusion of self-sufficiency. I like how J.I. Packer puts this. He said, Petitions looking to God as the sole and omnicompetent source of supply of all human needs, down to the most mundane, are expressing truth. And as denying our own self-sufficiency humbles us, so acknowledging our dependence honors God. So every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything that you have or will have comes from Him. Look, maybe your lunch is going to be leftover meatloaf provided from a friend, or maybe it's some, you know, pot pie that you've got to chisel out of the frost where it's been in your freezer for three weeks. Whatever means it comes, it does not change that God knew you needed it, and He's the one who gave it to you. Forgive us our debts, Jesus says, as we forgive our debtors. This would be so much easier to pray if the Lord hadn't included that qualification, as we forgive our debtors. And it gets even harder when we realize there is a parallel account. This is not the only place this prayer is found. In Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke records this, but he uses the words, forgive us our sins. This does a couple of things. First off, it should make us stop calling this the Lord's Prayer. The Lord Jesus does not have forgiveness of sins that he had to seek. He did not have sins. He did not have any kind of debt that needed to be forgiven. I much prefer the title, The Model Prayer. This is clearly Jesus teaching his disciples, here's how you should pray. If you want to hear how the Lord prays, you can go to John chapter 17 as he's in the upper room before getting arrested and the entire chapter is, that's the Lord's prayer. The second thing that should strike us is the reality that we ask for daily forgiveness in the same breath that we promise to be forgiving every day. This is why the Lord inserts verses 14 and 15 after this prayer to make it clear 
that those who are forgiving are in fact those who have been forgiven. Not in the sense that you are earning God's forgiveness by forgiving others. You cannot do anything to earn God's forgiveness. But every child of God who has experienced the forgiveness of sins will be forgiving of others. Because we know, what was the cost of our forgiveness? We obtained forgiveness of sins by the Son of God himself coming, living the perfect life, going to the cross, dying not for his own sins, but suffering and dying because I have sinned, doing it on my behalf, going to the grave, rising up alive again after three days so that when he says, believe in me and you can have eternal life, eternal life is his to give. He's defeated death on our behalf. You need this every day. Praying this daily points you to the cross daily. In fact, we just sang, I need thee every hour. There is never a day that goes by except that the most righteous disciple of Jesus proves in something you say or something they think or something they do that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus' life was necessary for their forgiveness of sins. And as a result, no forgiveness you are ever called upon to give is going to compare to the forgiveness you've obtained through faith in Jesus. Lead us not into temptation is the third one. James 1.13 tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone. So is it really necessary to pray, don't lead us into temptation? By itself, it might be a puzzle here if not combined with the statement but deliver us from the evil one. It is evident that the prayer is our dependence on God for direction and for protection since our adversary Satan is described in other places as a roaring lion pacing about, seeking whom he might devour. We do have an enemy who would delight in alluring us away from the pathways of righteousness. This portion of the prayer is a reminder that since we're not self-sufficient for our daily needs and we're not self-sufficient for finding forgiveness, we're also not self-sufficient for evading Satan's wicked plotting unless our Heavenly Father guides our steps. As for the end of the prayer, it mirrors the beginning. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I really tend to think the Lord Jesus is teaching us here to echo the words of his ancient father, King David. In 1 Chronicles 29, King David was not allowed to build the temple, but he started collecting the materials for the temple, and the people of the nation joined in in bringing all of the things that were necessary. And when that when that, the necessary materials were collected, the people of the nation joined him in hallowing God's name. Listen to this prayer of David for hallowing God's name from 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, 
Blessed are you, Yahweh, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you reign over all in your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. How's that for hallowing God's name? Part of the model prayer seems to come directly from David's prayer, that man after God's own heart who was clearly praying for the praise and the glory and majesty of God in all things. If you would follow the Lord Jesus' teaching in the model prayer, you will not pray with vain, empty repetitions where you have meaninglessly regurgitated some memorized babble. Instead, your heart is going to erupt with awe-filled reverence at being able to call the Creator your Father. You will seek to hallow and reverence His name in all that you say and do. And in that, then we can pray and we can ask for glorious things like the coming of His kingdom and the glory of His name. We can ask for Simple things like changing our hearts so that our will submits and conforms to his will. We can ask for personal needs because I need God so that I can survive every day. God has got to be involved if your family eats today. If you are flying across country to meet with family, if you are trying to get some sleep with a fussy newborn, if you are asking for healing with your body is breaking down, if you are seeking comfort from the loss of a brother or a precious friend, all of these things come from God alone. We can ask for forgiveness. And then knowing how much we have been forgiven, we can live out that truth by being forgiving of others. We can ask for guidance for the Lord to straighten the crooked paths in front of us and and lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, protecting us from the schemes of the evil one. But in all that, speak with sincerity speak with a heart that values the majesty and glory and beauty of God, treasuring that more than all else. In all of that, make sure that your heart's desire is hallowing his name.